And hello and welcome to Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And, you know, I, I could go into, again, what has yet been another eventful week in U.S. and um, kind of Jewish news. Uh, and there'll certainly be some examples that I can throw in there uh, that are a part of the last few days of news. But this is more of a concept program. This This edition of Novak Now is going to be a little bit more of a concept program that will be something that could probably survive. Uh, we, we could, in other words, we could rerun this show probably in 10 years or five years, and, and it would still have a lot of salient points. I think this is something that actually over thousands of years will still make sense. Um, and the title of this program today, this particular edition of Novak Now, I would really call it Cain and Abel in America. And for those of you who are little bit more religiously educated and they don't you don't know who the heck I'm talking about in Hebrew Cain and Hevel Cain and Hevel obviously the, the the two brothers the biblical sons of Adam and Eve and for those of you who aren't familiar with the story uh the biblical story there's you know not a lot written about these guys their story isn't um, doesn't call, it doesn't have like a lot of chapters, and then it culminates in this big climactic event. It's really kind of starts very very shortly before the climactic event, and then there's a repercussions from it, and then we never hear from them again. We never hear about them again. But just to summarize the story very quickly for those of you who may not know your your biblical stories and your biblical literature. Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. They are born after they are Adam and Eve. And again, if, if you're more religiously educated and you don't know who the hell, heck I'm talking about, I'm talking about Adam and Chava. After Adam and Chava and Adam and Eve are expelled from Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, they have children. And Cain and Abel are their first children, two boys. And we know that uh, according to this, you know, according to the the the, the the Torah. Cain is kind of a vegetable farmer. He's more of an agrarian type. And Abel, Hevel, is a is basically kind of raising it. He's more of a shepherd. He's, he's, he's raising animals. And it comes time for them to make some kind of sacrifice or korban to God, some kind of offering to God. And Hevel, Abel, offers up some of his best livestock. And Cain gives mediocre, middle-of-the-road type vegetables or fruits or, or, or some kind of non-living being sacrifice. And the Torah tells us that God accepts Abel or Hevel's sacrifice. He gives him his approval and Cain, for his lack of effort, lack of sacrifice, doesn't really get anything. Doesn't get punishment. We don't, we, don't, we don't learn that God has punished him. And this infuriates Cain to the point that he kills his brother. Cain is the first murderer, kills Abel. We're not told how it happens. If you ever read the old... For, for those of you who grew up with the old picture stories from the Bible, which was one of the first graphic novels out there... Um, you, they, they depict the murder as Cain grabbing Abel from behind and hitting him over the head with a rock. Um, who knows? But the, the Torah doesn't tell us how the murder took place. And 
Cain kills Abel. And very much like the story of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, God starts confronts Cain, just like he confronted Adam about, hey, did you eat the apple? What the heck's going on? And so he says the same thing to Cain, but he does it a little bit differently. He says, where is your brother? And Cain, instead of admitting his guilt, Cain, instead of saying, I don't know, comes back with an angry answer. His answer is, am I my brother's keeper? This is a very important part of the narrative. Because it isn't a case of Cain just lying or Cain denying anything. He's angry. He doesn't think that God really even has the right to bother him about this. He's angry at God, presumably over the fact that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. Or maybe he's angry at God because God is what I think, and this will get into why I think we have Cain and Abel in America today. He's angry at God again because God is is demanding some responsibility be taken for the fact that Abel is missing or dead. Cain has a big problem with responsibility, and it comes up more than once in this very short narrative about him and his brother. Like I said, the Torah doesn't revisit this them again. It's really only a handful of verses when you really think about it. And yet, even in that small sliver of the Torah narrative, I mean, again, think about there's so much more that is written about their, the parents, Adam and Eve. There's so much more written about Noah or Abraham or all, all, you know, some, of the, some of the other names. And then, and then, of course, there's a lot of names in Brashid in the book of Genesis where you just hear their names and when they were born and when they died or that they were born and that they died. So they get, they get a little bit more, but there's a very little amount when you just think about it in the, in the sheer number of verses, and I could go count them up, and, and, and anyone can do that as well. If you want to go count up the number of verses or psukim that are about Cain and, and Hevel, Cain and Abel, but it, it's got to be less than 30. It's not a lot. And yet, even in that small sliver of the Torah, we have several, you know, more than one time, a couple of times, three times at least, where Cain has clearly shows his problem with responsibility. He doesn't like responsibility. Now, if you go to a yeshiva, or if you went to a cheder, or maybe even a Hebrew school, though I can't believe they teach this story in a lot of Hebrew schools these days. I don't think they're doing a lot of text, a lot of Torah text in Hebrew schools these days, which is, sh- which is a shame. But that's another, <laughs> that's another topic for another night another day, but the basic teaching and the basic idea that, you, that you're taught if you go to yeshiva is this idea that Cain was obsessed by jealousy, was consumed with jealousy over the fact that his brother's sacrifice is accepted and his isn't, and that's really the motivation. That's the motive in the murder. And backing up that idea is the fact that Cain's name in Hebrew, Cain, is the root, same root as the word kinah, which in Hebrew means jealousy. I actually think that's a little bit of a smokescreen. It's a misdirection. Because if you really look carefully, again, just at the verses, and you don't have to be a Talmudic scholar, and you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes, but if you really, really look at, the, at again, this relatively short narrative, of Cain and Hevel, of Cain and Abel, it's hard to believe that jealousy is the motive here. It's different. And, that, and, and because of that, because of that, there is much more to learn in today's America and in today's world 
about from this narrative in the Torah than I could ever have thought imagine you know I could ever have imagined as a young as a youngster learning this for the first time or the third time or the tenth time it was it's only been in the last ten years or so where it's dawned on me that the lessons of Cain and Abel are incredibly relevant for today's times, not only in the United States, but all over the world, but particularly in, West, in the Western world. There is a tremendous amount of, 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 of lessons to be learned from it. And I think that the only way that you see that door opening, the only way that you're able to take in those, those lessons is if you move away from the traditional jealousy motive narrative. Because it just doesn't fit when you think about the, the, the narrative as is. If you believe jealousy is the reason that Cain killed Abel, then Cain's attitude doesn't make sense throughout the story. Cain doesn't he's, – he's jealous of God's grace that, that he gives to Abel, you know, which is not, by the way, delineated. We don't really know exactly what God gives to Abel other than some kind of countenance. It's a blessing of some kind. And that can mean a lot of things. And I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything. We just don't know exactly what it, how to define it. But if Cain really had very much desired that, so in the first place, he would have done more to receive it. He would have given of his best vegetables or fruits or whatever he had. He would have made much more of an effort in that way. Instead, he doesn't really seem to care from the beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want God's blessing and God's countenance. But then he does. But, but the fact that he's so jealous that Abel gets it, that tells us again he does kind of want something from God. He wants something, but he doesn't want to have to work to get it. And again, what shows itself more often than any kind of jealousy motive on his part is a lack of desire to take responsibility to get the things that he wants. What is Cain really angry about when it comes to his brother? Is he angry that his brother got something that he didn't get? Well, if there was only one prize to be given, maybe that makes some kind of sense. The kind of, if I can't have you, I don't want you to have anybody, baby, kind of, <laughs> kind of idea that some people have. You know, and I say that jokingly, but you know, I, I don't mean that to be a joke. There are women in this country and in all other kinds of countries who choose one man over another, and sometimes the spurned man will come and get them. But that's not Cain. Cain's not jealous. He's not in a jealous rage. He's in an angry rage. He's still angry, but it's not about jealousy. It's about the fact that Abel has shown him up. Abel, Hevel, has made it clear that if you want to get God's grace, if you want to get God to watch over you, if you want God's blessing, you got to work for it. You have to sacrifice something. And that is what infuriates Cain. And I have obviously a lot more to discuss about this, but if you just want to get the on one foot kind of understanding of why Cain and Abel are still in America today, still around, that's the essence of the story there. There are people in this country and people all over the world, probably from the beginning of time, which is why this became such an important theme in the early, early chapters of the Torah, who don't want to accept the idea even of meritocracy. They don't want to accept the idea that if you want to get something, you have to sacrifice and you have to work for it. Now, that might seem to you and me like, oh, duh. 
of course you have to work for something to get something. And you might even be a little bit more enlightened, I'm going to put that in quotations, and say, of course, we know that some people get things by luck. And that's disappointing sometimes, especially when it's bad luck, when you don't get something. But for most of us, I think most adult, mature, functional, well-adjusted adults in the Western world especially, we understand that hard work is, is the way to get different, you know, is the way to get rewards. And that goes for people who don't have natural talents and people who do have natural talents, because even if you do have a natural talent, you have to work to cultivate it. And for those of us who are obsessed with the whole luck factor, and by the way, there are people, there are people who are obsessed with it. One of them is a professor at Cornell University named Robert Frank, not to be confused with the Robert Frank who reports about wealth for CNBC, two different guys. But there's actually a professor at Cornell University whose entire scholarship, in quotes, is all about how everything is luck. And he's an incredibly dangerous person. His ideas are actually quite dangerous. I'm not saying he should be censored. Certainly he's willing. I, I have no problem with him, him having the right to say what he's saying. But if people believe him on a large on a large scale, and, and I think there are a lot of people who do believe in this kind of this stuff, it's dangerous. Because as much as luck plays a role and as much as there's unfairness and, and people bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, it happens, it happens, it happens. If you have a society that's obsessed with the luck factor, if you have a society that's obsessed with the fact that some people succeed when they may not deserve it and some people don't, it break, it's a major breakdown of society, and we're seeing that happen. You know, it, it happens over and over again throughout history, here and there. And when it does, when it, gets, when it reaches a certain crescendo, it's quite dangerous for those, for those civilizations that get to that point. Those civilizations end up breaking down. And sometimes it's due to many years of harshness and unfairness. If you want to talk about what happened to Russia, going into Soviet Union and back to Russia now, many centuries of oppression of people. I mean, you talk about slavery in the United States or slavery that you had in Africa. I mean, you had basically almost all the people of Russia in some form of slavery because of serfdom and what, what serfdom really was in, in Russia. In other countries, it wasn't necessarily that. The feudal system in other countries had a little bit more flexibility. But for centuries in Russia, serfdom was basically sla slavery, and everyone was, <laughs> everyone, with very few exceptions, was basically um, uh, you know, had to live their lives this way. But moving away from that kind of discussion and that kind of pent-up anger over many centuries, if you have a society where responsibility is sneered at, where hard work is not as accentuated as, as an obsession over other people who are lucky, you're in big trouble, buddy. And that, to me, is, is a quick answer. But th this, this goes further. So another example, again, more evidence to me that Cain really isn't jealous of Abel, that Cain isn't really looking for a relationship with God where he works and God, re and God recognizes his work and he gets whatever credit or whatever blessing that Abel get, got, got. There's more evidence because what happens after finally it's hashed out that God basically lets Cain know, no, I know you killed your brother. I wasn't, that, that was kind of a rhetorical question. I wasn't asking you where your brother was because I didn't know where he was. I know you killed him. And it comes time to punish him. And God doesn't put him to death. But he says, I'm going to banish you. I'm going to put you in a place where there are no, where you have no family, 
putting you out in the wilderness, which we don't understand. What does that mean in a time of, I mean, are they the only humans on earth? Are he and, are, are, you know, are he and his parents the only people alive? There's really no explanation as to what that exactly means to be banished at that time. But again, it's not a good thing. Apparently, it's, it's no good. <laughs> he's not, it's not like he's getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and have gone Adam because that's already happened uh, to his parents. But there's some kind of – he's basically getting out of his comfort zone both literally and physically, both literally and, and figuratively. So he's out. And what does Cain say there? Does he beg for mercy? Does he say, no, let me stay? Does he say, I really, I see what happened now, and I want to work harder to gain your, the, you know, to at least gain some kind of forgiveness? Is there any? No, what does Cain do? He's got another demand. It's amazing. It doesn't say, oh, please forgive me. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, well, what are you going to do to protect me? He still has the chutzpah to tell God, hey, you owe me something. You're going to kick me out of my of my comfort of my 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 place, my farm, whatever it is. You're, you're going to put me out in the wilderness somewhere. H- how are you going to protect me? What if people find me out there and they try to kill me? How are you going to protect me? I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing, and yet it's not amazing because the mindset of a person who could kill his own brother just because he's angry that his brother has made him look bad, just because his brother has made has basically set a standard that Cain doesn't want to meet. Cain doesn't want to play the responsibility, sacrifice, gain, give something to get something game. And so he kills Abel in the hopes that he can not only kill him to get rid of the reminder that he failed, but in the hopes of killing the rules, killing the idea of meritocracy, killing the idea of responsibility. That's why he kills him. And only someone with that kind of crazed, really debased mindset could be caught for the murder of his own brother and still demand something from the authorities. Now, I know you know what I'm, uh, what examples that are similar to this. Haven't we seen cases of people who have killed, who have been caught in a murder, and yet they demand certain things from the judges and the courts? They demand several appeals. They demand better food in jail. They demand a chance to, to go to college while they're in jail. Demand, demand, demand. And then you realize the problem with this person in the first place, the reason why they committed the murder in the first place is because they have an incredible sense of entitlement and of self-worth that, that there's never any end to it. That's why they're a killer in the first place. We shouldn't be shocked that even if they've, after they've been caught, they're still asking for things because it was that part of their nature that got them into this mess in the first place. That's how it works. You know, we talk a lot in America now about self-esteem and we want our children to have self-esteem i'm certainly in favor of that but that's not really that should not be our number one goal and i think we've made that goal a little bit too high now if we're seeing children who are feeling like they have very low self-worth for those kids we need to work on them on their self-esteem that's got to be probably our number one job no our number one job is to make our kids good to have them behave properly to have them understand responsibility to have them be kind not to feel great about themselves Hopefully, they'll feel great about themselves when they're being good. And there are kids who are having a problem feeling good about themselves. We need to deal with them individually. But the number one goal in our society should not be to try to make all of our kids feel great about themselves. Let's have them be great. And then, hopefully, they'll feel great about themselves. It's not a, no, it's not a non-priority, but it certainly isn't the top priority. And you know, they've done psychological studies, and one of the most high self-worth groups in all of America people who have the highest self-esteem 
Who do you think they are? One, one of the highest. And every time they test a group, people who are on death row. Now, that may not seem like it makes any sense. How could someone on death row who's treated so poorly and has to wear the orange jumpsuit and is embarrassed and probably never goes? Because they're not embarrassed. And it was their high self-esteem and their self-worth that got them there in the first place. What is the, the basic message that almost every murderer is basically saying in his or her act of murder is, I'm more important than your life. What I want is, is of more value than your, than your, than your existence. So I'm killing you. What Cain wants as the first murderer is to get rid of the rules. He doesn't like the idea that there's responsibility, that Abel has set the standard now of responsibility and hard work and of sacrifice. So he kills him because to him it's more important to make the point that in the end, yeah, you're still not going to win. The, the do nothing or do little group that idea that, that Cain wants to live up to, he thinks he's won that argument by killing the achiever amongst the two of them. And that to him is more important than, than Abel's right to live. It's incredible. And so of course his self-esteem and of course his sense of, sense of entitlement is still enduring even after he's caught. Being caught is nothing compared to, the, to the, the, the decision that went in his mind to kill his own brother, to kill somebody. So that's not gonna, that, that, that didn't weed it out of him. Certainly God saying, hey, I've caught you and now I'm gonna punish you is gonna, is gonna stop him from being self-entitled and having a high self-esteem for himself. That's the point. That's why he's in this mess in the first place. So where do we find ourselves? Where are the Cains and Abels in America today? And there are so many examples, and I, I, I could take a more, more, there could be a lot more editions of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network where I explain them. But what we're seeing now, just in the last few weeks in the Democratic presidential campaign and some of the rhetoric that's come out in the last few, few weeks and days, we're seeing another example of that. What we've heard from people like Bernie Sanders for a long time and also people like Elizabeth Warren is a disdain for the very rich. Now, I want to make this very, very clear. I'm not a cheerleader. I don't think anybody should be a cheerleader for the very rich just because they're rich. Now, if you're very rich because you came up with an amazing discovery that's made our lives better, and a lot of people are rich because of that, then I'm going to cheerlead you, but not for your wealth, not for the money that's in your pocket or in your bank account, but for your achievement, for your hard work, for your genius. If you are wealthy because you took maybe a small inheritance from your parents and turned it into 10 times the size of it, I'm impressed with, with, the, with what you've done to do that. Is there some luck involved? Well, fine, there's probably some luck involved with every good thing that happens. But it doesn't mean you didn't work hard and doesn't mean you aren't very talented and you, in some ways unique. So I'm not a cheerleader for the rich for being rich, but there's a lot of wealthy people out there who I admire and I don't think about them in iconic ways. I don't have like posters of CEOs and, 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 and inventors in my room and never did. But I'm impressed with, with your talent, just like I'm impressed with an artist, with an athlete. I don't know what kind of a person they are. But I do know that it takes work, even if you're born with the greatest physical talents or the greatest musical talents, it still takes work. If you're going to be headlining at Lincoln Center or Carnegie Hall or playing in the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter how many wonderful talents you were born with. It's, it goes beyond luck. You're going to have to really work to hone that. And we can talk about that for a long time as well. So, but what you've seen in the last few weeks is more examples of the Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warrens of the party bashing the rich, making it sound like being a billionaire is on its face, a bad thing. It's wrong. Can't have that. 
and I got to say, there are some billionaires out there, considering what they've contributed in for whatever reason, that they probably deserve to be even wealthier. But again, I'm not interested in their in their net worth. I'm not interested in how much money they have. It's just a case of if you are a billionaire, I don't necessarily think right away you're a bad person. Now, if this were 500 years ago or 100 years ago, maybe the luck argument would have a little bit more heft to it. But, you know, you've got to look at the data. One of the most important things you can say about America today, and maybe the, most, maybe the most important thing when we talk about our economic culture in this country, we are now up to 80% of millionaires, and, of course, billionaires, people richer than they are. But 80% of our millionaires and billionaires in this country did not were not born as millionaires. So 80% now of our millionaires and billionaires are self-made. Does that mean they grew up poor? Does that mean they grew up with all the disadvantages of every poor person? No. Bill Gates, for example, grew up in an upper middle class family, but not a millionaire family. Okay, that's one example. Donald Trump grew up getting, you know, uh, uh, he did grow up in, his father eventually did become a millionaire, but I guess at the moment that Donald Trump was born, he wasn't. But 80% of our millionaires and billionaires are self-made and that they were not born into millionaire families. So we are not talking about just inheritance in this country. But if you listen to Warren and Sanders and a lot of people like that, you would absolutely get the impression that most rich people are the beneficiaries of luck, the beneficiaries of inheritance, and that's it. And that to me sounds like Cain. That to me sounds like Cain saying, no, no, we can't have these billionaires and these high achieving people because they make me look bad. I don't want to work. I want to get what I want to get and I'm going to demand it whether I deserve it or not and whether I'm willing to work for it or not. And that includes after I commit crimes. And there's a lot of people like that in America today and a lot of politicians who are willing to pander to them. Some of them are not as as risable as people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who have a lot of other negatives to them. There's another very wealthy person running for office right now, Andrew Yang, who I don't think is a bad person in the way that I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are borderline bad people. In the case of Bernie Sanders, I think he actually is a very bad person for his, just for his anti-Semitism alone and the way that he harbors it in his campaign. That's another topic that we've talked about here on Novak Now. But Andrew Yang, I think, has a lot of good intentions, but I think he is very much pandering to the Canes of America with his universal basic income. I'm going to give everybody a thousand dollars, whether they're just just for having a pulse. And I'm sure he thinks that that is probably a compassionate thing to do. It's not compassionate. It's disdain, and it plays up to the Canes of the world who don't want to have to do anything to get something for it. And when you Massage that muscle. When you massage that belief in a society, that's the beginning of the end of a society. Because the self-entitlement, the, the, the self-worth that that brings, it, it just is so dangerous. It's just so dangerous. You know, just for a quick example, if you really want to help the poor in America, the ones who are able-bodied and able-minded, and you really want to have some kind of a welfare program, you can read many of my columns uh, on CNBC. I've written about this, and I want to write about it again soon. How about free public transportation? Instead of giving people just money, $1,000 a month, give them $1,000 worth of give, – give, give them $200 or $300 worth of, of subway or Long Island Railroad or Metro North tickets if you're living in this area and, and so that they just get up. Because mobility, or what we call motility in, in, in economics, is such a, a, a great ticket to success. 
getting being able to get from point A to point B is is what you need in an economic in, in an economy. So that that's just one quick idea. But what I want to ask you to do in the coming days is think about where there are other Cain's and Abel's in America right now, because that to me is is a discussion that can go on for a very long time. Cain and Abel might be one of the very first stories in the Torah, but it is basically, in my opinion, front page current news even today. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Hope to speak to you again very soon.